When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. I heard all the way in America, I heard all the way in Indonesia that this fella talks too much. They say he's another Muhammad Ali. There's just one Muhammad Ali. And I want you to, whoever you are, you, you are not a fighter and you don't take my job. I'm the talker. Now, Clough, I've had enough. Stop it. Hello and welcome to Football Ramble Daily Book Club with me, Luke Moore. Me, Kate Mason. And me, Andy Brassel. On today's episode, we're going to focus on one of the definitive accounts of old Big Ed himself, Brian Clough. It's Duncan Hamilton's Provided You Don't Kiss Me. How do you react, though, when someone, you know, from your playing staff comes and says, boss, I think you've got, I think you're doing this wrongly? Good. Well, I ask him which way he thinks it should be done. We get down to it and then we talk about it for 20 minutes and then we decide I was right. Yes, that's right. Duncan Hamilton, in his role as football reporter for the Nottinghamshire Evening Post, covers Nottingham Forest for over 20 years from February 1977. In Provided You Don't Kiss Me, he delivers an intimate and revealing portrait of their charismatic and at times increasingly enigmatic manager, Brian Clough, back-to-back European Cup winner, dedicated Frank Sinatra fan and provocateur of the football world. The two proprietors of uh, our two national newspapers, the Daily Mirror and the Sun, are Murdoch and Maxwell. If I wanted to improve the standard of life in this country overnight and somebody gave me a magic wand at Christmas, I would have them removed from this planet. Robertson, the first time we've seen them attack them and there's Francis! Man puts his name on the score sheet and returns a great deal of the check. 
Now, before we get into this incredibly revealing study of actually quite a complicated man, and uh, you heard some of his audio greatest hits there, uh, grabbing the attention of the great Muhammad Ali, jousting with Don Revy on national TV, and what is a remarkable piece of television when you watch it back. I wanted to point out that I've never actually been involved in a proper book club before. And what I mean by that is I've never turned up at someone's house or to a library, got a glass of wine on the go and prepared myself for some red hot literary chat. Kate, is this a format you're familiar with? Because something tells me you do this kind of stuff all the time. Well, I'm actually pretty offended, Luke, that you don't consider our (laughs) extremely erudite conversations on the phone to be red hot literary chat. But we'll come back to that in a minute. I've never been in a book club either. I've made many attempts to join book clubs, but funnily enough, when I turned up at the place where the book club was supposed to be with the book all read, no one was ever there. Oh, really? That might say more about your social skills than anything else then. Well, I'm hoping you're going to be really kind to me. And as we're not in the same room at the moment, maybe that's why it's yeah. going to be <laughs> So I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually quite surprised that you have... I mean, if I saw you... When I listen to you speak and I see you, and take this with a pinch of salt, don't get offended, I instantly think book club. Mm. Yeah. But you've not. Okay, fair enough. Well, listen, this is, this is a good enough place to start. Andy, what about you? Have you ever partaken in a good old-fashioned chairs in a circle book debate over a bowl of mini cheddars? I've not, although I've frequently dreamed of it since very much enjoying the two series of the long-forgotten Channel 4 series, The Book Group. Uh, hopefully, uh, none of us here are former footballers or have, have got out-of-control opiate habits. Although I do, I do notice that um, there have been no mini cheddars provided. No, it's know, very difficult. In some cases, lockdown is not an excuse, Luke. We're recording remotely, as you well know, but also when we record back in the studio, I can go and get you a packet of mini cheddars, Andy, from the office canteen, but you and I both know how long that will take, and we haven't got that much <laughs> studio time, so you're going to have to just get on with it, I'm afraid. Provide your own mini cheddars and perhaps invoice Football Ramble Daily for them at a later date. Here's hoping we grow into it then, I suppose. Um, I think we've started in a really fascinating place. One of the most interesting characters in the history of football for my money, uh, Duncan Hamilton, with incredible access to him and his methods. Uh, Kate, what were your initial thoughts on this book, Provided You Don't Kiss Me? Well, Duncan Hamilton's such a great writer, isn't he, Leek? And what I really enjoyed about this one is that most football fans probably think they know a little bit about Brian Clough. He's he's such an iconic character. It's a sort of caricature, I think, probably many people of our generation would have um, of him. I'm including you in that one, Andy. Um, you know, <laughs> he, of course, had this very sad descent into alcoholism, but you also remember him for these these barbs he was constantly throwing out at people and the way he had such an incredible turn of phrase. You know, he's a very witty guy as well as um, being quite rancorous. So what's what I really enjoyed about this one is how obviously Hamilton had this unbelievable access to Brian Clough for all of those years. And it's clear that he's he's a fan, right? But he manages to do what is such a difficult thing to do when writing about a character like this and present something that's sympathetic and has perspective, but also shows the the really dark side uh, of Brian Clough and manages to keep it from being either one thing, kind of angel or devil um, when he's presenting it. And And of course, also what you feel throughout the book is, you know what's coming, right? So there's this feeling of pathos about 
why couldn't he have made up with Peter Taylor? Why couldn't he have had a less uh, difficult time in some of these relationships with some of these characters? He might have had a better uh, better life. But then he's also this like strange genius and it's incredible to see him in action. Mm. Andy, would you go along with that? Um, yeah, I would. I, I mean, I think, as Kate says, that it, it's, it's sufficiently layered, um, the book and Duncan, Duncan Hamilton's perspective um, to uh, pay homage to the myth, but at the same time show you that what the man beneath it was. And I think he does very well to um, fully praise him for his best bits and his best achievements, yet not skip and gloss over um, some some of the, the, the more challenging aspects of, of his behavior and um, of, of his relationships with people, um, which I think is quite difficult to do, especially when the subject is, is, is no longer with us. I mean, that can often lead to the edges being taken off a, a, a character. It sort of made me think a little bit of like my, my own relationships. Um, like, for example, like when, um, when my mum died, for example, I remember um, my dad really quickly shutting down anything I said that might be seen as, as not praising her as a saint. And I found that quite difficult because, you know, my mum, like everyone else, was not a saint. And the imperfections are, are what make you warm to people. So I think that was something that was really beautiful about, about this book. The other thing I like so much about it is, as well as um, it being based around one of the iconic characters of English football, you get a lot of Duncan Hamilton in it. It's almost Hunter S. Thompson-esque, I think. He feels like a full participant. And you get a sense of him growing as a sports writer and as a person throughout the beginning. I think the, the image when he arrives in Clough's office for the, for the first time and he's you know, barely more than a child, he feels totally unprepared and he's very open and honest about that. I think that sets it up beautifully. Yeah, I was yeah. kind of a bit suspicious of that as well sometimes, you know, of, of writers making themselves too big a part of the, mm. the story of the people that they're writing the biography about. But here it worked really, really well. And I think it was partly to do with the way that, um, because the way that Hamilton works as a writer, as all great writers do really, is that he takes the tiny little anecdotes and then he makes that represent a whole world of the character. So there's a really, really lovely bit where um, he talks about how he always used to bring a book to go on the bus because he used <laughs> to get to travel with the team. And he says, uh, whenever I bought the book, Clough would always borrow it and he'd never give it back. And that was just such a, I don't know. <laughs> he ended up, buying, he ended up to... buying two copies of each book, didn't he, he said. Exactly right. Yeah. And and I love the idea of all of these. It, it, one of them was um, Ernest Hemingway, A Movable Feast, combined with uh, A.S. Byatt, I think was one of the other mm. ones as well. And it's it's quite charming to think of Clough kind of potentially hoarding all of these like scrappy yeah, books. One, one, of them is a, one of them is a uh, book on psychoanalysis by um, Sigmund Freud. And, yeah, he and didn't Clough, get on with that yeah, though. Clough, Clough <laughs> one, one page of that and says, no, 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 that's not for me that. But but just, just to, to hone in on a couple of things you guys mentioned in your initial thoughts and to give maybe a few of my own, I, I felt like, because it's not approached in a traditional linear way, this book, it's not a case of it starts in this 
at this time period and ends at this time period. It's it's a lot looser than that. And, he, and, he, and what Hamilton seems to have wanted to do is to focus on different aspects of Clough's life and his relationships and his achievements and, and his experiences and kind of extrapolate those out across different chapters, giving you a different impression of each of the different sides of him rather than saying this is what happened in chronological order. I think that to me feels like how he gets away with inserting himself into the story so much because in some of those, I mean, Andy mentioned um, Hunter S. Thompson there. In some of those um, Gonzo type um, stories, it, it, it clearly is it was so obviously just more about the, the, the author than it is the subject. And, and, and you, can, you can choose whether you enjoy that or not, of course, but that is clearly what it's about. Whereas with this, it doesn't feel at any point that, that Clough isn't front and center. And what Hamilton does is he uses his own relationship with Clough, which actually towards the end, he starts to talk about him as a father figure and talk about how much he's learned from him and how much he's gained from from his experiences with him and, and and compares that actually quite favorably with his own father, it becomes a much more rounded account. And there's clearly an arc to it as well. I mean, his Clough's initial success at the very top level that starts not long into Hamilton's tenure in 1978, stretching all the way through to the last thing he wins with Forrest, obviously in, in, in 1990, is mirrored in terms of his life outside the game as well, Clough's life, I mean, the breakdown of some of his key personal relationships, his sad descent into alcoholism, which Hamilton describes as the man taking the drink, turning into the drink, taking the man. Um, it gives the story of a quite macabre symmetry, really. And I think one of the, one of the reviews of it called it painfully unvarnished, which I think is correct. And I, and I, I applaud uh, Hamilton, actually, for resisting his hagiographic tendencies because he clearly likes and respects Clough a great deal. Um, to deliver all sides of him in, as I say, like an unvarnished way. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, just in microcosm, talking about the relationships, the way that they break down. At the end of their relationship, the last time he, he sees him is when Clough wants to write a one-off column for the Evening Post after he's retired. And it was big money back then. You know, 500 quid for a column was was big money to ask for it sounds as though the post didn't didn't want it particularly. Hamilton's the one who has to go back and tell him that, and they never speak again yeah. after this massive years and years long relationship. That's it. You're out. And, and I, I think, think that's that's it, isn't it? That um, that's what makes it so real. The fact that it does have in some cases quite mundane detail i think that's really really important rather than it just being a huge list of achievements the fact mm. that you know you know sometimes um clough doesn't really have anything to say or they're just chatting nonsense about um i i, I guess the, the fact that they have a similar frame of reference and i think he he relates to hamilton because um his dad came from the northeast and he was a minor and his dad was a minor so there's there's some sort of working class click between them but some days like clough is a bit hungover and a bit uninspired and he's just you know drinking whiskey out of out of a tea mug i, I think that is all is all quite important you know the 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 sense that it's not all just swathes of of magic i, I think that helps to humanise him and makes it a proper portrait rather than just a, a party political broadcast for the for the Brian Clough party. And that's really important because what that then does is that 
that obviously just as you say Andy, it humanizes him but it also makes it, him a lot more relatable because yeah. there's, there's, there's because clearly he i mean despite what he said about walking on the on the river trent and and all that kind of stuff clearly this is a guy who wanted more than anything else really to be loved and respected and appreciated and that and, and you get the impression that's what drove him throughout his entire career really but at the same time he is completely like undiluted as a character like there's a, there's a book about um, the great sid barrett the, pink, the original pink floyd guitarist and songwriter who obviously died very young and had his problems with mental uh, sorry died a few years ago but had his very difficult problems with mental illness throughout his life and there's a book about him called a very irregular head and the author talks about how different people dilute themselves um throughout their lives um and so their talent and so their energy and their drive go um longer and longer and and sid barrett just didn't do that he didn't dilute any 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 part of himself and it feel it reminds me of clough a bit it feels like everything's was sort of on his terms and that comes across when you think about the things like the grudges that he that he bore like like kate was referencing there with the author himself but also with peter taylor as well who i don't think mm. um they they had their relationship ever repaired before peter taylor sadly died so i think that's one of the things isn't it the, the, the sense of regret after peter taylor dies he finds it very very difficult to to come to terms with and that's a piece of cloth i think we're not used to seeing that sort of vulnerability and that that is something that that only the author really with his years of relationship with brian clough and his access um behind the curtain as, as, as kate was saying it's, it's only him who can really bring that to us because is is something that he finds very difficult to get over and he gets really bogged down you sense in the regret that he'll, he was never able to make it up with Peter Taylor. And not just that, I think Clough's very self-critical, isn't he? He's very much, why didn't I take the opportunity to to make mm. it up? Why did I leave it so late? And that's something he finds very difficult to, to, to get away from. That's one of the really endearing things, actually, about Clough in this book, is that he does seem to have quite a good capacity for self-analysis. So even though he does, some of these things that he does and some of the behaviours that you read about are just just dreadful basically he just some of the bullying that i understand that it's from a different era and we're looking at it through a 2020 uh lens but some of the stuff he he does to people and the way he treats them just sounds really horrendous but then later in the story you you sense that he does have an idea of what kind of a man he is and that is something that he struggles with the other thing that i really liked about um what you were saying, Andy, about the relationship and seeing behind the curtain because of the privileged position that Duncan Hamilton has is that perhaps from our perspective, it's pretty amazing to see a journalist have that level of access to a really, at that time, elite level club. What's he doing yeah. on the team bus? It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and uh, but, but going back to this this idea of, of some of his behaviour, Kate, because I, I want to drill down on that a little bit more. I mean, it's a dichotomy there, isn't there? Because he's clearly lauded, and in my opinion, on balance, rightly so, as an amazing man manager, I mean, if you if you if you um, go and watch many of the interviews of players who've played under Clough, a lot of whom have gone on to become successful managers in their own right, and a lot of whom won the top trophies available in the game, they defend him um, to to the hilt. Really, I mean, I did a ramble meets with Trevor Francis not that long ago, who said that you know everything Clough did for did for a reason, and even if I didn't agree with it at the time. Um, I understand why he did it, and I respect it, and I accept it. I mean, I, I came to that interview with Trevor 
pretty pretty prepared to to to, to defend him and sympathise with him because of the way he had been treated at times by Brian Clough, and he he just wouldn't have any of it. He was like, no, 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 I I I accept it. I understand why it happened and why it needed to happen, and it helped me become successful. Yet on the other side of it, there are things, as you say, Kate, that through a twenty twenty lens are clearly problematic. I mean, the treatment of Justin Fashionu, the physical abuse he dished out to players, um, seemingly proud proud to do so as well. Um, what, 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 what's your takeaway from that? And do you just think that's just a further illustration of the, like I said, the dichotomy, the, 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 the confliction in, in, in human beings? Well, it's a symptom of a great manager, isn't it? That they can act in sometimes problematic ways and the people that they serve, if you like, their, their, their players will back them to the hilt and will perceive it to be all part of a, a grand plan. I mean, I don't know about you, but reading this, I did think on many occasions about Jose Mourinho and the, the career arc that he's had. And I know that mm. I think Daniel Taylor's book on Clough, I think Mourinho wrote the forward to it. Mm. Um, so clearly he recognises that there, there is some level of this. This is what's so exciting to read about Brian Clough, though, is that he's this incredible, charismatic man who can make people behave in these, you know, play above themselves, achieve things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. But mm. yet, you mentioned the Freud, him not liking the Freud book. Um, and he, in that passage, when when Hamilton and he are discussing it, he says, that he can read players, he can understand what they want and he can effectively bend them to his will. And so it's quite painful to reading the section about Justin Fashionu and about how he effectively didn't feel as though Justin Fashionu, who was gay and obviously was struggling with um, dealing with being in the spotlight and having such a hefty price tag placed on him at such a young age. And there's all this stuff about how he wore, you know, vibrant clothes and that sort of thing. I mean, yes, I appreciate we're talking about a different era, but it's just interesting to see that if if some of these players were um, the kind of men that Clough was able to understand in perhaps a kind of carbon copy version of themselves, then that was okay. And he felt he could read them, but I think anything slightly away from that norm was, was very difficult. for him. Now, I think it's a, pro- that's a problem that dogs football to this day now. But Andy, yeah. But that's Andy, why it's so interesting. What, what, what I got from that actually was not necessarily that Clough was a, a, a homophobe or a, a, although I think, you know, you could definitely deduce that from from the way it went down. But I think that the interesting thing is that he seemed to me less inclined to, from the way that Hamilton told it, to help Justin Fashionu, not because he was homophobic, but because he was Peter Taylor signing and he never agreed with the signing in the first place. So it felt to me like a, a simple matter of ego. And I think that's a really interesting thing at the, the heart of at the heart of Clough and certainly at the, at the heart of the way Clough is, is is presented in this book the fact that he's someone who he knows as Kate says that he's got this ability to relate to people um said again and again and again 
by Hamilton, the fact that Clough has no real interest in tactics. He has no interest in training most days. And that's why him and Taylor work so well together because he could just leave Peter Taylor to, to get on with it. And then he'd just, you know, enigmatically show up, whether it be uh, the day before the game or whether it be, you know, 45 minutes before kickoff to, to tell everyone what the, what the team was. Um, but I think that that's, that's the really interesting way about the way um, Clough is, is, is looked at here. You, you're almost allowed to draw your own conclusions, I think, rather than Hamilton saying, right, okay, I followed him for 12 years, 14 years, whatever it is. Therefore, I know everything about him. What he does is he puts it all out there and you're allowed to maybe draw your own conclusion. I mean, you talked about the, the physical violence before and the bit that really struck me in the book is the bit where he's talking about um, when Clough comes on the pitch and clips a couple of pitch invaders around the ear um, after they beat uh, Queen's Park Rangers in the League Cup. I remember this quite vividly from the time being ever so slightly older than you guys. And um, at the time... Cluffy was celebrated as good old Cluffy, um, not putting up with these yobbos, et cetera, et cetera. Yet the way that Hamilton presents it is he was just drunk and, mm. you know, didn't think about it. I don't think there was, from his perspective, there's no stand there. There's no sense of, right, this is me doing the right thing. He's just a bit drunk and not having it. Okay, well, that's it for part one, but stick around because after the break, we'll delve more into Clough's charm and charisma and discuss some of the darker sides of his personality as reported by the author. Good. Just sorry about it. I apologise to your mum and dad. My dad's ashamed of me as well. Good. Now, what's important, lads, is anybody can apologise because I've done it. I've apologised for becoming physically involved with you. The important thing is not to do it again. Now, I won't do it again, and you won't. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time. For you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ramble. 
How can you be bottom of the Premier League? Well, to be fair, it's kept me awake for about four or five nights in the last three months, every week. And I don't know how we're bottom of the Premier League, but we are bottom. You've got to be re realistic. We are bottom of the Premier League. It's as simple as that. Uh, and until we get away from the bottom, Raymond, people like you will continually and perpetually, and whatever the words are, will keep asking me these questions. But we've got to get away from the bottom of that league. I am sick of being bottom of that league. Hamilton's portrayal of Clough's descent into alcoholism is is kind of there in front and centre, really, certainly towards the, the second half of the book. Hamilton later said he felt um, ashamed of his part in what he considered to be enabling um, Clough's illness. And he and, and there's a, in, the, in, the, in the version of the book I've got, um, it's like there's a Q&A with, with the author at the end, and he, and he, he sort of confirms that. How did you? What did you take away from that aspect and, and that theme from within the book? Did you think? Did you think that um, Hamilton was harsh on himself to say that later, or, or because purely because even in this style of writing, it's not really the um, the author's um, job to interfere necessarily, is it? But on the same, t on by the same token, that could be seen as a bit of a cop out. I remember there's a. Um, is it, is it um, the Tom Wolfe book, the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, where he witnessed a lot of appalling behaviour? Um, during during the writing of that and he and he makes a decision not to interfere because he thinks that you know i'm essentially a documentary writer here and i can't really interfere with the the natural order of things yeah yeah, and, yeah. and and i do think it goes back luke to the ramble meets you did recently actually with james montague where sure it's another good example yeah he said how you you know to to, to fully um chronicle a behavior uh, and a behavior that you don't agree with you've got a like park your judgment for a minute and just let it let it happen, which is is very difficult, I think, for a journalist. But I think as well, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning with Duncan Hamilton in, in particular. Th there's a couple of elements. Firstly, if he'd not have sat down in Brian Clough's office and had a drink with him and always said, oh, no, I'll just have a water or can you get me a cup of tea? Maybe Clough wouldn't have opened up to him in the first place, maybe Clough would have felt judged. I think the other thing you have to bear in mind is the comparative authority of the two figures in, in, in this book. So mm. whereas by the time that he's writing this book for us, he's someone who I think is um, acutely aware of um, the pitfalls of, of, of journalism and sports journalism. I think that's, that's clear. He's um, pretty clear and authoritative in terms of um, cliches around around Clough himself, but when you go back to the beginning, he's just a kid. He's just a kid there in the office of this incredibly famous football manager. And is he going to say no to a to mm. a drink? It's almost like breaking cover, and there's there's going to be no trust there in the in the beginning. So I, I don't think you can really, I think he's very harsh to judge himself on that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, okay, I'll bring you in just a second, but just to follow up on that before I do, um, uh, it's a piece in the daily telegraph written by uh, Jim White, uh, who says in his life, uh, Clough was protected from exposure by the frightened silence of those around him. Hamilton is clearly ashamed of his part in the conspiracy to which Duncan Hamilton said, he's right, I am, but even now, I'm not sure whether or not my voice railing against it or anyone else's for that matter could have kept Brian away from alcohol. How do you react to that, Kate? Well, it's an illness, alcoholism. 
And the difficult thing, the reason why it's so complex in this presentation in a book like this is because as so often throughout history and throughout literature, alcohol is associated with, you know, being a bon vivant and this whole idea of him bringing you into his office and offering you a scotch and this bonhomie and having a chat. It, it, it's uh, what you're talking about. It's this ability to create a sense of collaboration. And this is perhaps a little bit off the record and we're chatting outside of, of normal life if we've got alcohol. So, well, it seems as though it's very difficult to split the two things. It's clear that that Brian Clough had a had an illness. And of course, we don't know anything about what his life would have been like if he'd had support to help him exist without alcohol. But it's part of the tragedy, isn't it, that people, I think, accept that alcohol was part of how he functioned. So, yeah, perhaps that's a bit of a limp answer, but mm. I, I don't, you know, he, he, you would hope that today an employee of a company, which is mm. let's not forget what he was, would be given a bit more help to deal with something that was beyond his control. Kate, it's, it's part just, of this. So, sorry, Kate, I was going to say no, it's part the, of this, the fact that it's, it's Nottingham Forest. I mean, like, I think it's brought home to us again and again in the book that he's able to let his dictatorial side flourish mm-hmm. because it's it's little old Forrest who had no real um, uh, big guy at the top of the club pumping all the money in, who just had um, you know members who chipped a little bit in. It was almost like a, a sporting society rather than the ownership model of, of a lot of other their, their rivals in, in, in the first division. And like Clough was only the only, only real um, sporting authority at the club apart from Peter Taylor, really. So for that reason, he gets to run the club in a way that he could never run any other club. And, you know, they talk about... Uh, England being scared to give him the job or Mm. bigger clubs like uh, Liverpool or Arsenal being scared to give him the job because, you know, he's this firebrand. But actually, he he never really wanted that, did he? Because he wanted to run the club according to the gospel of Cluffy. He didn't want to be told what to do by anyone else. And you always have the sense that he wouldn't have accepted that. That's absolutely the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. it just seems as though, you know, just to keep coming, I know this is not like a, this is quite a boring point in the context. We're talking about the character of this man, which is so extreme and dramatic and exciting to be around and and mm. people are carried along with it. And then we're saying, well, but he was an alcoholic and some of the stuff he is drinking, it's like extraordinary that he is able to function at all to do anything, let alone yeah. uh, run an entire football club. But that that's an aside. But Again and again, I just return to the fact, and I think that's the point that Duncan Hamilton is trying to make, that this was an open secret that he could not, he he did need help. This man needed help. And whether or not he's a, um, yes, I'm sure he made it difficult for people to help him by virtue of the force of his personality. You just wonder what would have been different if if someone had been able to help him. Because, you know, this is classic alcoholism, isn't it? Not 
seeking help, not wanting to change. That's the first stage of Alcoholics mm. Anonymous, isn't it? You know, I accept that I'm an alcoholic. Mm. Yeah, and, and but I mean that it's it's clearly a theme that runs throughout um, the, the book, but particularly in the sort of latter half of it. But I mean, just changing tack ever so slightly um, away from that aspect of his of his of his character, um, the charisma of the man and the and the the sheer force of personality that he. I mean. The author talks a lot about Clough just being able to walk into a room and just just things like the very idea that everyone knew that Clough had turned up at the training ground or was had arrived at the stadium or was had walked into the room of of a hotel bar or whatever and 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 everyone who knew him um, and and in some cases people that didn't know him's behaviour just instantly changing that kind of magnetism. Is and and Kate earlier you mentioned Jose Mourinho is clear. There's a comparison to be drawn there. That kind of magnetism is fascinating to me, chiefly because I would would have loved to have been able to experience uh, meeting him and, and spending some time with him if, if I was able. But also, it's a part of football that we can't sort of quantify or explain. And in this modern and need to justify everything with data or with insight or with statistics or whatever it may be. There's a certain X factor about high achievers in whatever field they're in that I think other human beings find very hard to quantify. And I think that really comes across sort of loud and clear in this portrayal of Clough, doesn't it? Yeah, charm's one of your favourite things, isn't it, Luke? I think it's fair yeah. to say. <laughs> I'd, I'd, quite like, I'd, quite like to, uh, I'd quite like to experience it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard rumours of its existence. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's I suppose why he's such a ripe topic for 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 a book like this, and for so many books, of course, you know, Damned United, etc. But this one's set apart, um, Kate, isn't it? Because this is a definitive account from the time. It's a contemporaneous account when compared mm-hmm. to this is not this is not meant to to be to the detriment of Jonathan Wilson's book on him. Obviously, also of this parish or or David Peace's slightly different take on it, or Daniel Taylor's take. This is the contemporaneous account which for me makes it the most powerful and I'm sure you'd agree with that mm, well I oh I wouldn't want to start ranking them ruthless well I'm that's not the last section of the show at some point <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating part of it, right? And that's the whole point of the book almost. If he was the most boring guy around and he won a couple of European Cups back to back and achieved everything he achieved, I'm sure it would still be a fine story and people would enjoy reading about it. But the, the aspect that I'm trying to zero in on here is the idea that the character he was makes this such an important and interesting story, right? Yeah, of course. And the way that he, you never know how he's going to react next. There's a lot of stuff about how he, he tries to keep his players on their toes, but also some of the loveliest um descriptions are of his generosity people finding their wedding reception paid for in one notable instance yeah um is that because he wanted to be liked though again i think so i mean there's another section as well where hamilton writes about how he you mentioned of course luke that most of the time people are aware when he turns up and uh, kind of you know drawn towards this magnetic force that is Brian Clough but there's also um section more towards the end where he says that if people didn't pick up on who it was he might start having a loud conversation with the barman who's 20 feet away in order (laughs) that people do realize who they're drinking with Andy did you like him yeah I did I really did. And um, when you talk about like his outbursts of, of generosity, um, th- that um, scene in the Brighton Hotel lobby notwithstanding, 
it's generally quite anonymous, isn't it? Which I, I think is quite interesting that he does it simply because he thinks it's a nice thing to do rather than for the publicity. And for someone that we're aware of throughout the book is acutely aware of the value of, of publicity and the value of self-publicity, that doesn't really factor into that. I think in terms of his chops in the game, the, the um, mm. blowing his own trumpet is, is, is very, very important. And I do wonder as well, you know, when you, I think you can't help when you're reading the book, sort of place him into the hierarchy of great English and, and British and British-based coaches as well. And the Mourinho point that, that, that Kate made is a, a really interesting one. I wonder if without Clough, there is the appetite for Mourinho in the, in the, in the first place. Because mm. someone who is so totally contemptuous of people's technical uh, questions on the sport. And that really as fans is what a lot of us want to know what really happens on the training ground. Um, how does the team actually function for those of us who've, who've never coached a team? Whereas Clough is really the first in sort of creating this mystique around the manager. And I think of modern managers or head coaches, no one like Mourinho is so keen to keep that mystique alive. But I think it's so curious, isn't it, that because Clough remains thoroughly charming, despite the fact that he is clearly quite self-aggrandizing, I just wonder if sometimes you need that historical perspective to be able to absorb it all. Because when I think back to the first couple of times I spoke to Mourinho when he was still in charge of Porto, I think now looking at it in 2020, you can forget how you can totally forget mm. how charming Jose Mourinho used to be. He really mm. was, you know, yeah. he was smart, he was dashing, he was witty. And as time goes by and you know, that feeling of power starts to slip away. Is that the bit where you become a bit more barbed and henceforth a bit more difficult to like? I, th I think it's a well-worn, um, it's a really good observation. I think it's a well-worn trope, isn't it? I mean, people people just get naturally, or in some cases, particularly in the cases of um, high-achieving people in, in really popular industries, you always get a new generation that comes along behind with yet more ideas, yet more innovation, and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and an increased ability to relate to the younger audience or the younger player, whatever it may be. Mourinho said himself, he finds it harder and harder to relate to younger players. He was using it. The example he was using was Marcus Rashford when he was at United. I like Marcus Rashford because he reminds me of an older player. I find it hard to relate to the younger players now. There's always going to be a timeline. You're always on that treadmill. Mm. And it happened with Clough as well. Like Hamilton's very, very scathing in some instances about, about a man who he clearly likes. I mean, it's a very touching moment in the book when Hamilton finds out that Clough has died. And we mentioned mm. it at the very start of this, this father figure type mentality. But he's also, at the same time, very scathing and very damning and very dismissive of the idea that Clough would ever be successful as a coach or a manager uh, in 2007, 2008, when the book was written. This, this wouldn't be possible. He would have, he would have been a, a, a person out of time because of the demands are different, because the standards are different, and because of that thing you mentioned, Andy, around the size of the club that he managed that and, and all the rest of it. So what happens is we see with these big charismatic characters, 
And and Hamilton also says, by the way, that a lot of Clough charm was superficial and he was almost certain that he was an actor performing a role and he would practice all these amazing lines that he's now learned, known for way in advance and he would just perform them rather than think of them spontaneously. But there is also an element, always, I think, of a bitterness that starts to creep in. And perhaps in Clough's case, it was accelerated by the, his use of alcohol and, and, and the trouble he got himself in. But I do think that it's not a coincidence that... Um, these types, Mourinho, Clough, whoever they may be, do start to come with an undercurrent of bitterness that is is actually quite prevalent in whole generations of men when they get to a certain age. I know that's a really sweeping thing to say, but I do think there's an element of that in, in large swathes of the male population at a certain age. And these guys are just a very crystallised version of that. One of the key things that made me think of Mourinho, apart from the obvious trajectory and the various charm elements, was towards the end, actually, when Hamilton said, phrase making fascinated Clough, the way a piece of writing took shape in the mind before it assumed permanent form on paper. Now, you say, Luke, of course, that he um, practiced and acted out delivering lines. But one of the reasons why this book is so successful, I think, is that it's clear that Clough respects and recognises the force of writing and the force of um, delivering key points in an interesting way as a real important element of the job that he was trying to do. And then he respected Duncan Hamilton's ability to do that in his area of life. And so I think he had a real grasp of what journalism was and what it was for. And so I think they felt an affinity there and it cuts to the heart of, of the way his charm was performed, I think, the ability to, to speak in an interesting way. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think the end, um, I mean, there's an epilogue as well in my version of the book when he talks a bit more about um, Brian Clough's sad um, sad passing. But the end of the book, the copy I've got, um, Hamilton finishes by quoting Red Smith, the great uh, writer. He says, dying is no big deal, Red Smith wrote. The least of us will manage that, but living's the trick. Uh, Brian Clough lived and he lives still. I thought that was a tremendously powerful way to, to mm. end um, the, the book. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was the epilogue is brilliant. It, yeah, because after all of this, you've had this nuanced picture created throughout, and then at the end, I don't know. I was I was quite close to tears, to be honest. Even it's a very I human reaction, isn't it? At the end, I didn't necessarily like him throughout because, just personally, one of my things that I really admire in managers and people who are looking after people is consistency. And so it sounds yeah. as though <laughs> Brian Clough would not have been in my good books. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, at the end, the human moment of him assessing what kind of a guy he was and uh, sorry, of Duncan Hamilton experiencing the loss. Oh, it's breathtaking. Okay, that's just about all we've got time for for this week. Thank you very much to you, Kate Mason. Thanks, Luke. That was great. And thank you, as ever, Andy Brassel. Thank you so much. And that was Provided You Don't Kiss Me, the inaugural selection of the brand new Football Ramble Daily Book Club. Why not let us know what you thought of the book or suggest future selections we can talk about over on our social media accounts at Football Ramble on Twitter and at Football Ramble Daily on Instagram. And of course, if you want to sign up to our Patreon to get extra insight, bonus shows and plenty more besides for as little as $5 a month, it's patreon.com forward slash football ramble daily thank you so much for joining us and we'll look forward to talking with you next time
This was a Stakhanov production. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 